Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, the book of Amos, chapter 6. Well, we're going to continue in Amos chapter 6. However, early in this lesson, we're going to make a major pivot to a challenging topic that can be a little harrowing to venture into. But it is one that needs to be addressed openly and intellectually honestly, and seriously considered by all worshipers of the God of Israel and His Son Yeshua. So we're going to, we'll just, we'll go just a couple of minutes longer today, okay, in the lesson, so we can get it all in. Okay, there's been a slight deviation in Amos 6 that now includes the kingdom of Judah along with God's ongoing condemnation of the kingdom of Ephraim Israel. And the condemnation begins by targeting the decadent materialism of their government leaders and their elite citizens, not only because of their laser-like focus on wealth and leisure and personal entitlement, but also because it further drives the ordinary citizens of both kingdoms into poverty. Let's reread this entire, very short Amos chapter 6. Amos chapter 6. So get your Bibles out and follow along with me, please. Woe to those living at ease in Zion! to those who feel complacent on the hills of Shomron, that's Samaria. Renowned men in this foremost of nations, to whom the rest of Israel come, travel to Kalne and see. From there go on to Hamat the Great, then go down to Gat of the Philistine, that's the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is, your ter- is their territory larger than yours? You put off all thought of the evil day, but you hasten the reign of violence. You lie on beds of ivory and lounge, sprawled out on your couches, dining on meat from lambs in the flock and from calves fattened in stalls. You make up wild songs at your parties, playing the lute, inventing other instruments, imagining that you're like David. You drink wine by the bowlful. You anoint yourselves with the finest oils, but feel no grief at the ruin of Joseph. Therefore now they will be the first to go into exile with those being exiled, and the revelry of those who lounged, sprawling, will pass away. Adonai Elohim swears by Himself, says Adonai Elohim Sefaot, I detest that Jacob is so proud. I hate his palaces. I will hand over the city along with everything in it. And when that day comes, If ten men remain in one house, they will die. And if a dead man's uncle, coming to to bring the corpse out of the house and burn it, finds a survivor hidden in the inmost recesses of the house and asks, Is anyone else there with you? Then when he receives the answer, No, he will say, Don't say anything more, because we mustn't mention the name of Adonai. For when Adonai gives the order, great houses will be shattered, small houses reduced to rubble. Do horses run on rock? Does one plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into bitter wormwood. You take pleasure in worthless things. You think your power comes from your own strength. But I will raise up a nation against you, house of Israel, says Adonai, Elohei, Zebaot, and they will oppress you from the entrance of Hamath to the Wadi of the Arabah." Well, as we concluded our our, uh, last lesson, the subject was the nearly daily eating of meat that the rich enjoyed. Now, I pointed out that the diets of ordinary Israelite citizens only included meat from, from cattle and sheep a few times per year. Their source of animal protein was nearly exclusively fish. 
Rather, the ordinary citizens usually only ate meat at the time of the biblical feasts, when it was required to sacrifice a sheep or a goat or a cow, maybe a bull. Now, the rules of ritual sacrificing from the Law of Moses allowed these folks to keep a portion of the meat from the slaughtered animal, with the remainder given to the priests, and then the largest part of that portion burned up on the temple altar. Now, Jehovah deemed such an imbalance in diet between the wealthy and the average Israelite to have been symbolic of gross unfairness, and it violated the basic governing principle of the entire Bible, to love your neighbor. Now, although this is not the harrowing pivot I mentioned just yet, I do want to take a few minutes to sermonize on an issue that since the fall of Adam and Eve has always been part of life on earth in human society. The issue concerns money, wealth, generosity, and charity. Now, since this sticky issue will remain with us until Yeshua returns to rule and reign, while He was still on earth, He offered a severe warning about this topic that is all too often merely offered as merely a, a regular Christian platitude, but only sometimes is it actually taken seriously. We read this in Matthew 6, 19-24, Do not store up for yourselves wealth here on earth, where moths and rust destroy and burglars break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves wealth in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and burglars do not break in or steal. For where your wealth is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if you have a good eye, that is, you're generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if you have an evil eye, if you're stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then, the light in you is darkness, oh, how great is that darkness! No one can be a slave to two masters, for he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. Now, it can be most challenging in modern Western societies to figure out exactly how to put this complex instruction of Christ into action. I mean, standards of living and sources of income and how societies and cultures are, are, are structured are so vastly different today than they were 2,000 years ago and more, that we must be discerning as well as deliberate, deliberate, and the application of this obviously important, important commandment of God. Now, the first thing for us to grasp is that the Bible never rails against the idea of gaining wealth and abundance. Rather, the issue is how it's obtained and what is done with it. And overriding even that is how much of our life's focus is supposed to be given to obtaining and maintaining wealth. Now, I want to be clear, the humanist, socialist idea of no one having more than anyone else, that the government should see to it, that all should have equal wealth to the lowest common denominator, is not at all what Christ is suggesting. Jesus is telling us that our mental focus and our energies are to be spent much more on building up things that are of value in the kingdom of heaven than on earth. This does not mean that somehow mystically some items and objects that we can purchase have actual any actual intrinsic value in heaven whatsoever, or that some material items are in some way greater in worth in heaven than what their monetary worth might be on earth. Rather, the idea is that it is the value of a person's virtuous 
and compassionate actions and deeds as measured in terms of God's economy that has the greater value. And so, is in a certain sense, therefore, stored up in heaven. These are the things of eternal rather than material value. Now, at the same time, Yeshua goes on to speak about being generous, not stingy, on earth, and is of course speaking at that point about material things. And when he says that the eye is the lamp of the body, it is a Hebrew expression. It's not to be taken literally. A good eye is a generous eye, an evil eye is a stingy eye. And since in this expression the eye is compared to a lamp, a light, then it is that the type of eye we have indicates whether our souls are full of light or they emit darkness, no light at all. Our generosity, our compassion towards others demonstrate that we have enlightened souls, while the lack of those virtues indicates that our souls are full of darkness and wickedness. Now the bottom line that Yeshua arrives at on this matter is explained when He says, No one can be a slave to two masters, for he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You cannot be a slave to both God and money. Now, while mostly self-explanatory, He simply means that if our life focus is on obtaining and maintaining wealth, then we will necessarily shun being generous and compassionate. There is no way we can be equally focused on two things that in God's economy are opposites. It operates much like a teeter-totter. Finding a good balance is near to impossible, so one end is always up and therefore the other must necessarily be down. We all want to live decently, all of us have as few financial worries as possible. Who doesn't? And attaining this involves hours every day of going to work, as well as demanding a goodly portion of our attention as we attempt to produce something of value that earns us money to live on. Being wise in our choices, determined in our hard work, and blessed by God can and often does lead to building up our wealth. No matter the era, working and toiling much of our waking hours has been necessary to provide a good living for ourselves, for our families, and God expects that of us. However, our good fortunes are also to be used for more than only our own personal or family needs and wants. There are those people who have their basic needs going unmet, and they need care. If we have the means to help them, we are commanded to do so. But again, this in no way means a, a politically socialistic leveling up, whereby a government determines how much each person ought to have, and so plays the role of Robin Hood taking from some to give to others in order to achieve a government-defined equality of wealth. Now, at the same time, let us also remember another biblical principle that is part of this equation. Just as greed and decadence are not to be tolerated, neither are laziness, irresponsibility, and drunkenness. Okay, A person who is lazy or foolish with their lives or their money or is always drug-dazed and has decided to live unnecessarily on the charity of others is by no means who the Bible says is to be financially helped. In the biblical era, there were no such things as government food stamp and welfare programs, all good things. Whatever charity was given to the poor came only through individual acts of mercy. Now, in modern Western societies, taxes are taken from us in order for the government to be the primary source of aid for those that need it. Now, in my opinion, 
While it's well-intentioned, such a system does have its drawbacks. For instance, irresponsibility and laziness are now entirely tolerated. And those folks seem to be lumped right in with those who are sick or lame or have other issues not of their own making that has thrown them into poverty. Some nations, such as France, whether completely capable persons decide to work for a living or not, it's up to the government to provide a basic living for them if they decide against working. It's their choice. The philosophy is that if a person is essentially forced to work in order to provide for themselves, it amounts to slavery. Now, which is societal? Well, such a societal viewpoint, I think, is pretty extreme. Nearly all Western societies are moving towards a belief that all people, regardless of their reason or their circumstance, are owed a basic living. Now, this philosophy is thoroughly anti biblical. God does not approve of this approach. I could quote to you literally dozens of scripture passages that address this head on, especially in Proverbs. But for the believer, I think this, the following sums it up the best. You can find this in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 11 and 12. We hear that some of you are leading a life of idleness, not busy working, just busy bodies. We command such people, and in union with the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, we urge them, settle down, get to work, earn your own living. I think that sums it up pretty well. Now, the problem God had with the wealthy people of Israel was not that they had wealth. It was what they did with it and how they got it. They looked with a blind eye towards their fellow countrymen who were desperately poor through no fault of their own. They showed no generosity, no compassion to those who couldn't put food on their table. While at the same time, they gorged themselves on the finest of everything, as much as they wanted, far more than what they needed. And used as an example of this decadence was the excessive eating of meat that in that era, in that era, would have been one of the most blatant displays of such decadence and indifference. Now, the issue Yeshua spoke about was the same as what Amos is addressing, only he did it almost 800 years later. <laughs> and as his followers, we are expected to help those who are in dire straits due to no fault of their own. The wealthier among us ought to help in a greater proportion. But all who can help are to help. And the wealthier to keep their lifestyles in check so as not to descend into abject decadence. Now, this isn't left to us as an option, folks. This isn't an option. It's a commandment. God prodded the people of Israel, especially the wealthy, especially the wealthy, for centuries to love their neighbor by being generous, by being compassionate. But when the wealthy became even more wealthy to the detriment of the ordinary citizens, and the poor were driven further into poverty, well, God became angry. And he took action to strip the wealthy of their abundance due to their disobedience to Him and lack of compassion to their fellow man. It's no different for us today. And at some point, should we who have so very much compared to so many around us who aren't even sure where their next meal is coming from, tarry and not act, you know what, we can pretty much expect the same response from God. Well, back to Amos chapter 6, verse 5. Verse 5 is speaking about the extravagant banquets and leisure time of the elites. You know, background music. Well, that was important then as it is now. And the ability to play an instrument and to compose songs and music was something that usually only the aristocrats had the time to do. By mentioning King David, 
The comparison was that Israel's wealthy are trying to act like royalty. Now we must also remember that David did not go, hear me, David did not go from poor to wealthy when he became king of Israel. He came from a pretty wealthy Judahite family. And so at an early age had already begun to learn how to play a lute and to sing and even to compose songs. King David was the historic gold standard of kings for the people of Israel. And so God accuses all of Israel's wealthy of, stri of striving to become like David in that regard. Now in verse 6, after chastising the wealthy over their eating excesses and their musical indulgences, Amos turns to their drinking habits. And as with the issue of money, simply having some wine is not wrong. It's a matter of excesses. Thus, as a means of highlighting that excess, Amos says that not only do they regularly drink wine, they drink it bowls full at a time. The picture then is that they drink so much wine uh, they just give up drinking from goblins and instead directly drink directly from the wine casket. Now saying that they, the, the elite, anoint themselves with the finest oil is referring to the normal practice of rubbing olive oil on one's skin and scalp. All but the poorest of Israel did this mostly because it killed the ever-present problem of lice infestation. Kind of icky, huh? Of course, in addition to hygiene, it also had the property of soothing dry skin, moisturizing a female's skin so that it was softer to the touch. Now, the issue then is not of the use of olive oil for this purpose. The issue is that they use the finest oil. Olive oil has always come in various levels of purity and quality. Today we call these levels virgin, extra virgin, extra extra virgin, even the source of the oil matters a lot. The better the grade of oil, the better the food was that was cooked with it tasted. So the idea is that rather than the elite using the typical lower grade oil to rid oneself of lice, they use the more conspicuously expensive high grade oil normally used for cooking as but a moisturizer and a lice killer. In other words, needless graphic extravagance. Now there's one other aspect of these expensive indulgences that the ancient Jews would have noticed that we probably don't. It is that God in, in earlier verses said that Israel ought to be in mourning. They needed to be in mourning for how far from righteousness they had fallen. And because of the catastrophes that He has promised are soon going to befall them, it was traditional that abstinence from the finer things of life during a required period of mourning was to be observed. Now, although taken from a slightly later period, we read this from the book of Daniel. Daniel 10, verse 3, I had not eaten any food that satisfied me, neither meat nor wine had entered my mouth, and I didn't anoint myself once until three full weeks had passed. It is of no coincidence that what Daniel mentioned is something he deprived himself of as he was in mourning. This was the same things Amos threw at the Israelites for, count, for uh, continuing to indulge when they should have behaved as though they were in mourning. Now this mourning concept highlighted when verse 6 is highlighted when verse 6 ends with, but they feel no grief with the ruin of Joseph. Now I pointed out in much earlier Torah class lessons that if one looks at the names of the tribes that form Israel, we find the conspicuous absence of Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, 
Joseph's missing from the list. Instead, we find Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, born to his Egyptian wife during Israel's 400 year stay in Egypt. They were each given tribes of their own in their father's stead. In this way, then, the tribe of Joseph was doubled in power and size. Now, for the point Amos is making, it is to be noticed that Ephraim and Manasseh together make up the bulk of the northern kingdom of Israel in both landmass and in population. So, while Joseph was intended to receive a double portion inheritance from his father, Jacob, and that's reflected again in the two tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, his sons, now the rebellion of Israel has brought that intention of a great blessing for Joseph to ruin. Well, verse 7 begins with the word, therefore. Now, therefore is a standard word used in prophecy to announce the judgment sentence for the crimes that were committed. And since the main subject in Amos 6 has been the elite, the wealthiest of Israel who, who slather themselves and only the choicest of everything, therefore it is they who will hold the choices, choicest of places and the columns of exiles as they leave the land. They will be at the front. The leaders of Israel will lead the people into exile from the front. That isn't where they want to be. Then this section of chapter 6 then concludes with the notice that the elite won't be able to avoid the same fate as all the lesser, ordinary Israelite folk. While their wealth has always allowed the wealthy to find ways around all the problems and difficulties that the regular Israelites face, God has decided party's over. Their exceptionalism is coming to a very harsh ending. Now verse 8, verse 8 is the end of the chapter, at, rather at, to the end of the chapter, starting at verse 8 through the end of the chapter, is a literary unit that's all about the terrible military defeat that's about to engulf Israel. First, Ephraim Israel will feel the sting of defeat by Assyria. Then, a little over a century later, Judah will experience the same but from a different invader, Babylon. And this next oracle begins with an oath that God makes in His own name. Literally, it begins with saying, by His, by God's life. This is just basically the equivalent of saying, by Himself. But there is more here than meets the eye. God references Himself in a couple of ways, and in both cases the English rather obliterates what is actually said. He calls Himself Lord Yehovah. Second, He adds to His identity by saying, Yehovah Elohim of hosts. Now I want to take this opportunity to focus on the term Elohim, which is nearly always translated in our English Bibles uh, as simply God. At other times, is as God's plural. That, within traditional Christianity, inevitably carries with it the sense of them being false gods. Now, I contend that there is quite possibly, even probably, a different picture of what this word Elohim actually means to impart to us than what we have historically thought within Judeo-Christianity. And just like a few lessons ago when we dealt with the word Nephilim, taken as the Bible intends, not as historical Christianity has changed it into, it answers so many challenging questions 
that comes from the words of a number of biblical passages. Words that we traditionally gloss over because to take them at face value feels most uncomfortable to us, especially now in the modern age of enlightenment. So, we're going to detour for a while by opening yet another can of worms. And the wormy subject concerns the biblical meaning or meanings of Elohim. Now, I want to first prepare you by admitting that some of you, some of what I say, might feel uncomfortable, if not shocking, even almost heretical to you. I believe, however, that by the time we're done, you'll see that if there is any heresy at all in it, that it would be heresy towards some long held man made doctrines. Certainly not heresy to God's Word. And that is with the issue of the Nephilim, more um, mysteries of the Bible, more mysteries of the Bible will be answered. And they're going to finally make sense. Now, I further want to state for the record nothing that I'm about to say in any way challenges the notion of Yeshua as God's Son or as our Lord and Savior. Nor does it address the substance of God Himself, nor does it challenge the reality of His plural nature. Okay? So just keep that at the forefront of your minds as the worms start to crawl out. In order that you not assume something I, I, that you, you think I'm saying something that I'm not. Okay. Open your Bibles now. I want you all please open your Bibles to Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Starting at verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Elohim stands in the divine assembly. There with the Elohim he judges. How long will you go on judging unfairly, favoring the wicked? Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Uphold the rights of the wretched and poor. Rescue the destitute and the needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. They don't know. They don't understand. They wander about in darkness. Meanwhile, all the foundations of the earth are being undermined. My decree is, you are Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you will die like mortals, like any prince. You will fall. Rise up, Elohim, and judge the earth, for all the nations are yours. Now, if you read and listened to that closely, those words ought to have raised some questions in you. If you didn't, go back and read it again. There are a few different ways that translators have chosen to interpret especially that opening verse. Now, you've heard from the complete Jewish Bible, now hear it from the RSV, one of the more widely distributed Bibles among traditional churches. Listen to that. Just the opening verse. A Psalm of Asaph, God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. What does that do for you? Other versions, such as the NRS, Say essentially the same, and I can assure you that when you read the Hebrew, this is correct. So, what are we to make of God taking his place in the divine council, which is further elaborated when the psalmist says, In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment? Divine council? Gods? If this were the only place in the Bible, that we are confronted 
with such statements, perhaps we could owe it to a copyist error or something else. But by no means is that the case. Adding back in the Hebrew word that's at the core of our topic now, which is Elohim, the verse reads, Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of Elohim, he holds judgment. Now, Elohim is the most used name or title in the Old Testament for God, second only to his formal name, Yehovah. In this verse of Psalm 82, we see the word Elohim used twice. The first time it is said to mean God, the standard Judeo-Christian God, and the second time it means what exactly? What does it mean? And unless we accept the translations of some Bible versions that attempt to say, God has taken His place in the divine council, in the midst of God He holds judgment, which is just nonsensical on its face, then how are we to understand what's being communicated here? Now to arrive at an answer, the next issue we have to necessarily tackle is, what is this divine council? Now the majority of historical Christian scholarship, scholarship says, it just means a council of humans. Or alternately, this is talking about the Trinity. That makes no sense within the context it is given, especially when we read that God says these Elohim have become corrupt over the nations of the earth. But even more, verses 6 and 7 say these Elohim who formed the divine council, although being sons of God, will instead, what? Die like mortals. One has to work awfully hard to filter out what is plainly before us. But over the centuries, much filtering out has been done in order to uphold church doctrines that simply do not fit what the Holy Scriptures plainly say. Dr. Michael Heiser once said, You know, we've been trained to think that the history of Christianity is the true context of the Bible, but his Christian history is not the context of the biblical writers. Now that ought to be self-evident, since Western Roman Christianity didn't even exist until the 4th century, hundreds of years after Yeshua's death, and the Bible itself and Old and New Testaments have been written over a time span of from 300 to 1500 or more years earlier than that. In church and synagogue, you know, we have no problem talking about a supernatural world. None at all. But in practice, we act like doubters. We can talk about God as spirit, even about invisible angels, but much of anything beyond that gets a little painful, makes us squirm a little bit. And as we learned in our study about the Nephilim, we tend to rationalize away a number of things that are plainly said in the Bible because they feel so odd. Or they're on the fringe of strangeness or primitive myth. Our most learned scholars and pastors, rabbis included, tend to do the same. Nonetheless, we're going to face this matter of Elohim and the Divine Council head on. And we're going to assume that the Bible says what it means and means what it says. Because truth is not always comfortable. Now, a rather common debate today, not only between Christians and the world of science, but also within the world of Christianity itself is, before the world was created, who or what existed? The usual answer from Christians and Jews is God and nothing else. Well, as it turns out, the Bible says something different. It says that God was not alone when He created the universe. Job chapter 38 says something most tantalizing. 
starting at verse 1. Then Adonai answered Job out of the storm, Who is this darkening my plans with his ignorant words? Stand up like a man. Brace yourself. I'm going to ask you questions and you're going to give the answers. Where were you when I founded the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Do you know who determined its dimensions or who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its bases sunk? On who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Did you catch that? What does this passage plainly say? says that when God laid the foundations of the earth, the sons of God were already there with Him, as were the morning stars who sang praises as God created the universe. Now clearly the reference to morning stars singing are not to lifeless balls of burning gas up there. Rather they are to mysterious spirit beings. And just as clearly, the sons of God are certainly not human beings, since they were there prior to creation. Further, while it might be convenient for us, maybe even comforting, to just kind of lump all these spirit beings together and label them as angels, that also cannot be correct. What we learn is that there were spirit beings in existence before creation, and there were certain groups and categories of them. So the sons of God of Psalm 82 cannot be human beings. Rather, they're some type of spirit beings. The other thing we learn is that we can generally say that God had a family of sorts. Spirit beings He apparently created before creation, and they lived in heaven along with God before creation. Now, in order for us to have an honest discussion about this, yet accomplished in a way that doesn't shock or offend so much that we just kind of shut down and zone out, I want to use the term divine beings to characterize and define these various spirit beings. And you're going to see why later on in this lesson. Now, I realize the term divine beings is a rather nondescript name for them. But it at least acknowledges that whatever they consist of, they're definitely not fleshly. They are spirit. Now, going back to Psalm 82, verse 1, where we find the Hebrew word Elohim used twice. Elohim is, according to Hebrew grammar, a plural. Okay? The I am that ends that word makes it mean more than one. Yet some 2,000 times in the Bible, this plural word is used as though it were singular. One. And when this occurs, it is said to refer to the one God, Jehovah. Thus, this word Elohim can be used either as a plural or a singular, and the only, only thing that can tell us which is which is the context. Now, this isn't a strange or rare thing. English words such as deer, fish, dice, fruit, lots more, well, they are both singular and plural. It's the context which they are used that helps us to interpret a word and its meaning as whether it's single or plural, singular or plural. Now clearly in this verse, the first use is singular. It's God, since it points to a single entity. But the second use is plural, God's with an S, because it speaks to an assembly of entities. So might Psalm 82 be God essentially talking to Himself as the Trinity? God talking, in other words, to the other two members of the Trinity? Not a chance. If that were the case, then we have two members of the Trinity who are said to be corrupt. 
So they're going to be punished by dying like mortal men instead of living eternally. Anybody want to sign up for a corrupt trinity? Okay, don't see any hands out there. Me neither. So, we have to discard that option. But even more, then Psalm 89 blows a hole completely through any false notion that these Elohim, sons of God, mentioned in Psalm 82 that form the divine council, are human men. Listen to Psalm 89, verses 6 through 8. Let the heavens praise your wonders, Adonai, your faithfulness in the assembly of the angels. For who in the skies can be compared with Adonai? Which of these gods can rival Adonai? A god dreaded in the great assembly of the holy ones and feared by all around him. Did Hebrew men or any human men sometime in ancient times meet together up in the skies amid an assembly of angels? That would be utter nonsense. And we also encounter the issue of these gods, Elohim, being unable to rival Yehovah, who is a god, an Elohim, that is dreaded among the assembly of the holy ones up in heaven. Now, how then can we think about this? How can we mentally package this in a way that we can deal with it and make any sense of it? I suggest that we begin by simply stipulating the clear and the obvious that the holy ones, the sons of God, the Elohim, the assembly in the skies that the Bible speaks about are divine spirit beings. They're not human beings. That's easy enough. So to move this subject along concerning the word Elohim, let's see then the various ways the Bible uses that word. It is used first when it's referring to Jehovah God of Israel. Second, when it refers to Jehovah's divine counsel. Third, when it refers to gods and goddesses over other nations. Fourth, when it speaks, and this is an interesting one, when it speaks of the spiritual essence of the prophet Samuel after he had died. We find that in 1 Samuel 28, 13. And fifth, it is also rarely used to speak of angels. Now, we can also find verses that draw comparisons between Jehovah, God, and Elohim, gods, little g-gods. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like thee, O Lord, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, terrible in glorious deeds, doing wonders? 1 Kings 8, 23. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast uh, love to thy servants who walk before thee with all thy heart. Psalm 70, 97, 9. For thou, O Lord, art most high, over all the earth, thou art exalted far above all the other gods. Now, if you're like me, and like the vast majority of Christians and Jews, then whenever we encounter the word gods, again, little g, gods, in the Bible, we subconsciously insert the word false or non-existent before it. That is, we think that this is speaking about something that doesn't actually even exist. So here's the first harrowing question for you. Is that actually the case? Is that actually the case that Jehovah is the only Elohim in existence? In existence. That there is only one Elohim, and talk of any more Elohim is fantasy or it's myth. Well, in the Torah, we find this in Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to deities they'd never known, to new ones even recently arrived, whom your ancestors had not feared. The Hebrew that gets translated to English as demons is Shedim, 
Now, there's not much agreement in the academic world about just what the Shadim were exactly. Now, for today, we only need to acknowledge that whatever they were, they weren't humans, nor were they wooden or stone idols. They were real living spirit beings, likely evil spirit beings. But what do we do then with the several statements in the Old Testament that there are no other gods, no other Elohim beside me or before me? Now, Christianity has for centuries used those scripture statements to make the claim that this eradicates any possibility of any other gods, any other Elohim existing on any level at any time whatsoever. But is that actually what the scriptures say? These scripture statements do not say that no other Elohim exists, rather, they say that these other Elohim are not comparable to, nor are they the most high God, which in Hebrew is the most high Elohim, Jehovah. Then there is the matter of the biblical statements that we all know God is the God above all gods. Think about that for a minute. Is this just hyperbole? How can God be above all beings that don't exist? If other gods, Elohim, are completely non-existent, then are we saying that God is greater than beings that aren't real? Is that what we're saying? Let's pause now and catch our breath. See, here's the thing. The term God and gods are both attempted translations of the Hebrew word Elohim. And within our Judeo Christian faith, we rail at the idea that any more than one God, whether that's big or little g God, exists in any strata and any dimension. And when we start to think of gods, see, our minds instantly run to the Greek pantheon of gods, or to the several Baal god systems, and so on. Then we shut down our minds, and we close our ears to any meaningful discussion of the matter. What do we do? Why do we do that? You know, the issue, I think, is really with semantics, which is why a little while ago I suggested that perhaps we ought to stop translating the Hebrew word Elohim as gods and instead translated as divine beings. This way we cannot offend ourselves all right, or others by speaking about the possible existence of many gods. In historical traditional, traditional Christianity, we see the term God as meaning the highest being of any kind in existence, and thus to speak of other gods is like saying there are other beings on or near God's level. That is, it's a repudiation, if you would, of our belief in monotheism. Now, this is something that we need to put to rest. In fact, often in the Bible, Jehovah is spoken of as the Most High God. In Hebrew, the Most High Elohim. How does one even think about something that is Most High if there's nothing in existence that's less high? Okay, let's take this exploration of the term Elohim in another direction. I want you to listen as I read to you a familiar passage in Genesis chapter 1. Verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image and the likeness of ourselves, and let them rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the animals, over all the earth, and over every crawling creature that crawls on the earth. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, every living creature that crawls on the earth. Now, adding back in some original Hebrew, 
verse 26 says, Then Elohim said, Let us make humankind in our image. See, this statement about us making humankind has always been perplexing. And the pat Christian answer that was developed over the centuries is that the us is referring to the Trinity. However, truth is, a triune God concept never existed in the entire Old Testament. You won't find it anywhere. So this is certainly not what Moses had in mind when he wrote this down, nor would any reader have thought of it that way. See, what this is doing is this is reading a later Gentile Christian understanding back into a passage that had been written well over a thousand years earlier. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 and uh, 3, uh, 22, 3.23. Adonai, God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, now to prevent his putting out his hand and taking also from the tree of life, eating and living forever. Therefore Adonai, God, sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Now listen. There are two, there's only two, only two places in the Bible where God seems to be speaking of Himself as a plurality. And this is the Christian perception of the meaning. And this happens when He's referring to us. The first time is before creation. The second time is shortly after when the only humans that existed were Adam and Eve. Therefore, I mean to offer an alternative explanation that I think presents us with a solution that is much more in alignment with the Bible as it was written, even though, I admit, it certainly paints outside the lines of, of historical and traditional Christian doctrines. I think God is not referring only to Himself when He says us. Rather, I think he's having a dialogue with a group of divine beings that are apart from him. Who is he talking to? Well, as we read in other verses, to the divine council of Elohim, divine beings that we read about in Psalms and in Job and were in existence before creation. Now, we must always draw understanding from the Bible by approaching it as a, a kind of a mosaic rather than as an encyclopedia. In the Bible, we just don't get all the answers we seek in one place or in one passage. We have to find bits and pieces in various of its books and then assemble them together to get, a more, to get more complete answers, to get a, a fuller picture. Now, even though the book of Genesis does not speak of a divine council of Elohim that was with God at the time of creation, well, Job and the Psalms plainly do, but it's just too upsetting to our Judeo-Christian minds if we insist on using the English words gods to translate Elohim, especially as we find it used in Job and in Psalms, because it becomes nearly impossible for our modern era minds to accept these mysterious beings as actually existent and real. We just can't do it. it makes us crazy. You know, it's far more palatable for us, likely much more accurate in reality, if we instead just use the term divine beings as the meaning of Elohim. It should in no way shake our faith or our minds to think of God Himself in a very broad and general way as a special and set-apart divine being, the highest, the greatest among all beings of every category of every kind. He remains the preeminent. He is the first of all spirit beings, beings the only infinite, self-existent being, spiritual or fleshly. 
It is, as we regularly read in the Holy Scriptures, that He is the Elohim above all Elohim. And it is therefore the Most High Elohim, Divine Being. And substituting my definition of Elohim as Divine Being, that in no way diminishes Jehovah God, but it does allow for the existence of a divine of a category of divine beings who are lesser than Yahweh, yet who are also above other categories of divine beings, such as angels. Am I saying it is much better for our understanding? It is the proper translation to drop the term God or gods when we encounter the Hebrew word. Elohim, and that Bible translators would do us all a big favor by using the term divine beings as the definition instead. Yes, that's what I'm saying. For one reason, there is a definitive and well understood biblical Hebrew word for God that is not confusing, nor is its meaning obscure, nor is the word used in any other way. That word is Yah. Yah. Elohim carries this far wider and diverse meaning than we have typically thought it does. And you know, until we can accept that our biblical, we just can't accept this, folks. Our biblical understanding in many areas is just flat going to be stunted. All right, we're not done with this topic. I want to give you a few days to ponder what you've heard, perhaps to review this lesson before I bring it to a conclusion the next time we meet. All right, we'll see you next time.